Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We got a terrific show this week. We are going to talk to stand-up comic, best known for his role as Frank on 30 Rock, the author of the incredible book of cartoons, If the Raindrops United, the world champion, the man of a thousand baseball caps, Judah Friedlander. 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 And let's start by talking with Judah about a certain presidential candidate who is clearly biting his style. When Trump came out with the hat, make America great again, did you feel like he was stealing your material? Yeah, and, and, and he probably was, you know. He's seen me around before. He probably knows uh, who I am or, is, or the people who do it. But here's my thing with Trump and his hats. First of all, terrible quality hats. Awful. You know, bad stitching, bad fabric on the hat. And secondly, his hats are red and white. It's like, what is he running for, the president of Canada? <laughs> this is red, white, and blue. It's like he can't even get that right. And if the quality of his hats is going to be that poor, I think that's indicative of what he would be like as president. It's like, if that's the best he can do with a hat, what's he going to do with the country? So I, awesome. I was... I, I expected more from him. I really did. It's like if you're going to – first of all, if you're going to steal from the world champion, you know, who better to steal from? But, True. But you should do a better job of stealing. You know, that, that was some sad shit. Exactly. And, and he never even upgraded them. You know, they're just they're, – they're terrible. <laughs> how, do you, how do you become – how are you Mr. Pro-America and you make a Canadian hat? No <laughs> offense to the Canadians, but just calling it like I see it. With awful stitching. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> Judah was kind enough to join us in the back room of a public library in suburban Maryland where he's from. We sat down for a couple hours, and we're going to play you the best of this interview. It was a great time. And the first thing that I want you to hear Judah talk about is how he auditioned for that role of Frank Resitano in 30 Rock. But when 30 Rock came around, it was kind of like, well, I got to go in for this. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, really good people. Because it was Tina's project, mm-hmm. then it was called the, what was it called? It was just called the Untitled Tina Fey Pilot. That's what it was called. And Alec Baldwin was attached, filmed mm-hmm. in New York. I'm like, and at that, yeah. and that was at a time when not many shows were being filmed in New York. Now mm-hmm. there's a lot. Mm-hmm. So it was like it was a pretty easy call to be like, all right, yeah, I'll audition yeah, for get that. Get on the train and go yeah. over and do it. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll audition for that. Because I remember at the same time, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, mm-hmm. the Aaron Sorkin show. I'll, you know, it's a funny they, memory. They, People said, well, these shows cancel each other out yeah. was one of the concerns. Well, they wanted me to do a part on that show, too. Really? I auditioned for that also. The Cordry part? I'm Initially, I believe I Nathan Cordry? For the, for the, Nate yeah, Cordry? I auditioned for the Nathan Cordry part. Didn't get that. And they offered me a recurring role as one of the sketch players on the show. And I remember people in the industry saying even though 30 Rock offered me a series regular role and Studio 60 offered me the recurring role I should still take the Studio 60 mm-hmm. one because that was going to be the huge show because that's Aaron Sorkin yeah yeah and yeah and then you know he just did West Wing he just did West Wing and they're like sure. this show's going to be on for 10 years mm-hmm. this is the biggest show and you know Tina her status 
Mm-hmm. Well, power status in the industry wasn't nearly what it is now. Yeah, and Alec yeah. Baldwin had also yet to really reinvent himself. Right, he wasn't, his status wasn't where it right. is now. He was, you know, but when I looked at the two of them, I'm like, I'd never met Tina before I auditioned really? for her. Yeah, well, she was, you know, she's in the sketch and improv world, and I was in the stand-up world, and she was also at SNL, and then I was in a lot of movies and stuff. I think she'd only done one movie part. No, two, because she did um, Mean Girls. And then she yeah. did Beer League. She did a cameo in Beer League. Uh, that I didn't know. I didn't know yeah, she had a cameo well, in Beer League. Actually, one of the guys that my character on 30 Rock was kind of modeled after wrote and directed Beer League, Frank Sebastiano. When I auditioned, you know, I was already a fan of Tina's, even though I hadn't met her. And I was a big fan of Baldwin's, even though I, you know, hadn't met him. And so to me, it was an easy call. And I filmed in New York. I was like, right. I'm going to go with this one. And I thought dramatically, because I only had seen the pilot, I thought dramatically the pilot on Studio 60 was good. But uh, comedically, I did not think it was strong. And I thought the, uh, the 30 Rock stuff was strong. And the other thing, because it's scary, when you audition for a, a sitcom or even an hour-long show, at your last audition, you have to sign a six-year contract before you audition. Wow. Yeah, so and you don't, you don't know who's in it. You don't know what other actors are in it. And you have no idea where the story could go. Right. But when the star is also one of the writers. Right. And the producers, you're like, okay, you're in pretty good hands here because they're not going to be leaving, you know. So the, so, the worst so, case scenario is not a flop. The worst case scenario is something like According to Jim that just sort of hangs on for years. Yeah, yeah. And also it could morph it's, into something, you know, when you audition for something and it's a TV show, if it goes for a while, by second or third season, it can become something completely different than what you signed on for. Mm-hmm. So, and you're, you know... Once you sign one of those things, the, the, the network owns you. They don't let you do anything else. Right. I remember the first year of 30 Rock, I had to turn down three or four movies. And I remember when I got the part, the manager I had at the time was saying, oh, yeah, dude, they're going to let you, you know, wiggle room. No, none. You know? Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I thought the TV world had gotten better about that in recent decades you know, from, I, from the I, Remington Steel days yeah, where it's yeah. like Pierce Brosnan, well, you can't be James Bond. In, in some regards, I think it has, but it, it's all power. You know? Sure. All, everything comes down to power. Or any of the movies, things that uh, turned out to be hits, things that you wish you'd been I in? I can't remember. I mean, there's stuff I wish I would have done. Yeah. One was Adventureland. Uh, oh, I like that. Yeah, that was with uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Eisenberg and um, uh, Kristen Stewart. Yeah, Stewart. Yeah. So, anyways, but you know, you just sort of had to like put that aside, you know, sure. and not do that. I was able to do a little part in The Wrestler while Thirty Rock was going on. I loved The Wrestler. That, that's a great movie. Yeah, uh, like yeah, legit. That, yeah, that's a great, great movie. movie. <laughs> yeah. When I read that script, I was like, "All right, I'm going to do anything to get in this movie." And I was a wrestling fan, and I am a wrestling fan. Great show, Ram. You really put them over. Uh, there you go. Sorry, I was sure the gate would be bigger. But don't forget, two months. Rawway, legend signing. I need you, man. I want to talk to you about stand-up stuff, but just to yeah, finish sure. the line of thought, like if someone said to me, Frank Resitano, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Like I'm legit moved when I think about the relationship with Susan Sarandon as your, your teacher lover. Yeah. And the chemistry that you had with Patti Lapone, one of the great Broadway actresses to ever walk the earth, yeah. who somehow they got to play your mom. Yeah. It which was, was a casting coup of epic proportions. Yeah. When I think back on that, and I certainly reveled in it at the time, I was like, wow, that is really, 
ridiculous. This is absurd. Yeah, my Oscar girlfriend winner. be Susan Sarandon, <laughs> and my mom is played by Patty LuPone. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty insane. It's kind yeah, of. Yeah, I think at the time I joked, it's like I only work with Oscar winners or Tony winners. <laughs> Otherwise, forget it. You, you can't work with me. Oh, I was wrong. This isn't creepy because you're dating your teacher. This is creepy because you're dating your mother. You found someone just like me. Because I'm the woman you really want to be with. It's because you're the best. Oh, Frankie, Frankie you're, you're the, the best. best. <laughs> <laughs> is that the yeah. plot line that, that yeah. gives you the best uh, warm fuzzies when you think back on the show? Or uh, do you that, have something th- there's else? There's a that... lot. There's a lot of great... I can't really rank them. There was another episode where... I forget what it was called, but where basically uh, Liz Lemon had to leave for a bit. And my character got promoted to head writer. Yeah. Hey, we're all going to Chuck E. Cheese's. It's divorced Hispanic mom night. I can't. I've got to proof all these sketches, figure out the rundown, then meet with props in 10 minutes. Okay. Have a good night, Liz. (laughs) Very funny. I'm not Liz. And I started morphing into Liz Liz Lemon. And picking up all her mannerisms and everything. And that that was a lot of fun. That was awesome. Yeah, that was fun. Guys, standards is saying no to the Rubik's Pube thing. What? You look exactly like Liz. What? Shut up. You've just never seen my reading glasses before, which I have to wear to read your dumb sketches. And I lost my hat after I threw it at a bus that wouldn't stop for me, even though the guy could see me running. What about the person sweater? This is a bag for all the scripts I now have to carry, and I'm wearing a sweater because the studio's cold. You know what? I don't have to explain myself. You dummies have no idea what it's like to be in charge. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll be in my office trying to have it all. As an actor on that show, those were my favorite, were the ones where I really got to do and playing Frank was fun, you know, but I, I really like doing different things. So when they actually would just out of the blue have my character, like one episode, I, I turned gay for one episode, mm-hmm. you know, for one guy for one episode, that was fantastic. And I just love doing different things. So anytime they pulled that was was always like a, a treat for me. Yeah. Now, my mind kind of got blown recently when the Internet threw up uh, casting calls for The Office and to see you as one right. of the finalists for Dwight Schrute. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, do you ever think about... Well, actually, no, I, I, I remember that. You, I, I, I feel actually, like you dodged a bullet, is, I guess, my other question. No, I didn't, because I actually didn't want to do that show. Okay. I, uh, I, I remember I auditioned for it. I believe it was Allison Jones, who was the casting director, who's wonderful. So the, the office thing, I remember, I'm like, this is a cool character, but I don't want to do this for years. And I got to wear a suit every day. It's like... Mm-hmm. I didn't go into show business to to wear a you know a fucking suit every day and, and you know and and be perfectly quaffed and all that stuff. I'm like mm-hmm. I don't want to fucking do that. You know, <laughs> I'm a I'm a comic and now I got to yeah. play a corporate guy my whole fucking life. What is this shit? Like I, I became a comic so yeah. I wouldn't have yeah. to wear a I mean, suit. Every I, day. I mean, I'll do that in a movie or something <laughs> where if it's for a few months, but I don't, eight years, eight I don't, years, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't want to do that. Nine years, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But, so so I remember I auditioned for it and. I don't even know that I would have taken it if I would have gotten it. But, yeah, that's right. That's on one of their DVDs, I think. Or yeah. Now. It, yeah. It, it, it's one of those things where it's like alternative reality reality yeah. where Judah Friedlander yeah. uh, plays this part. Was doing the reboot of Wet Hot American Summer as fun as it looked? It was a lot of fun. You know, Did you guys race- party your asses off when the camera was off? Or was I, it, I, I, you, I, I don't drink. I've never, I've, I'm not a party person. Uh, 
Uh, so I don't know. I think on the first one, there was a lot of partying going on. Everybody I, was young. I, I didn't partake in any of that, yeah. but I, I think it was. But they did have a ping pong table, and I did I did beat everyone there in ping pong. So that nice. Was uh, everyone who played, that is. But uh, redoing uh, Wet Hot American Summer was a lot of fun. In the first one, I only was up there a day or two. And in this one, I think I did two or three days. And it was fun because it was kind of like a 15-year reunion but when you see everyone, they're still dressed and, you know, some people, awesome. some people wearing the wigs to look like they did back then. Some people, it's their real hair. So it was just, it was, you know, the first movie's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And the new one was, since it's 15 years later and everyone's still playing, actually everyone's playing two months younger than they were in the first one. Right. It was even more ridiculous. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun to do that. I want to talk about the stand-up. It's sharply, sharply political. I was always interested in it, and uh, I try to approach it in my stand-up in a way that is very cutting, that, that using satire and, and kind of working on two levels, where whether you agree with me or not, you're still going to be laughing at it. Sometimes uh, an obvious message, sometimes it's very uh, subversive, but... You'll you'll still be laughing at it, and even though you even if you don't agree with it, so that's I, I don't like preaching to the choir. I don't find right. it challenging at all. Um, I find it very easy. I think as far as like my viewpoint, a few years back, I don't know four or five years ago, I started performing stand up uh, in Europe, going to England, Ireland, Scotland, even doing Amsterdam, Sweden, France, and uh, and I started going there once or twice a year to perform shows. And initially, I thought. I'm going to learn more about these other countries and cultures. But what I wound up really learning was more about my own country. What did you learn? Well, you get to see it when, when you're in. So it's kind of like if you're in a, in a bad relationship. All your friends can see it, and they think you're an idiot, but you mm-hmm. can't see it. And then you get out of it, and then a few years later out of it, you're like, wow, how did I not see how this was just not working at all or I was being treated horribly or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure no one listening can relate to yeah, that. Yeah, so, so, <laughs> so basically when you're in the country and you're so in it and the media and everything, it's so powerful, it's so overwhelming, you sometimes can't step back and take a look at things. That was big as far as influencing my stand-up stuff was just getting away from things and then really seeing you know a lot of uh, hypocrisy in... You know, many things the U.S. does culturally and politically. And know. this is where we get to um, the USA number one. England, uh, so how does it feel to come all the way from England to the number one country? <laughs> We're the number one country. So, England, what's your rank worldwide? I mean, we're number one, but what, what, what do you guys rank? Last time I checked the charts, I, I didn't see you guys on You don't know? Okay, we'll just go to the statistics. Um, England, question. Uh, how many gun murders a year in England? Like two? All right, we have 30,000. You know why? Because we're number one. And think about it. Why does America have so many more gun murders in England? It's because our country has superior aim. We're, we're better marksmen. You guys have no hand-eye coordination. That's why you're always playing soccer. That's why England has never won the World Series. England, follow-up question. Um, when a woman in England, when a woman in England gives birth to a baby, how much time is she given off of work and maybe even paid for that time off of work? 
Women are given nine months of paid leave when they give birth to a baby in England. You know how much time women in America are given off of work after they give birth to a baby? Zero. And you know why? It's because our women care about the economy. That's why the euro's going down. Number one. I've always noticed the USA's nationalism, there's good things and there's dangerous sides to it. You know, you want to have pride, but you don't want to be so, like, we're the best that uh, you kind of shit on everyone else or you don't even see good qualities in other places. You know, we're the only ones who can have good qualities. We're kind of the only country or one of the only countries that really thinks that way. And if you look at our candidates over history, if you look at them, whether they're Democrat or Republican, they all say this election's very important because we are electing the leader of the free world. Yeah. Now, who do, do now? Do you think in Sweden? Do you think in China? Other countries? They're being like, how, now, if you're electing the free, the, the leader of the free world, how come only one country gets to decide that? If if you want to look at that, and do you think other countries are actually thinking, oh yeah, they're the leader of the free world? Yeah, you know, a lot of them look at us as like, let's hope we don't fuck things up too much because we are powerful. Yeah, big and powerful, you know. But we're not the leader of the free world. But that's a that's a so that's like a propaganda yeah. that comes from both sides, the left and the right, you know. It, it, so. Or they say, like, leader of the free world that has more people in prison than any other country. Like you yeah, yeah. No, I have a cartoon of that in my book, and I talk about that in my act. England, another question. Um, <laughs> how many people in prison in England? How many people are there in prison in England? I don't mean emotionally, but li- literally. How many <laughs> people are in prison? Because that would be kind of high, you know? Was it like a couple hundred? We have 2.6 million people in prison in this country. That means our government loves us so much that it awards 2.6 million of us free meals and houses. And some of us get a lifetime supply. And we cannot say no. It's a mandatory gesture of unconditional love. We have 2.6 million people in prison in this country. Kim Kardashian has 38.7 million followers on Twitter. We are incarcerating the wrong people. (laughs) Just the way I see it. And that leads us to a certain presidential candidate, because how does this matrix of understanding our need to be number one help you understand the rise of Trump? Well, I think Trump is actually, I think it's actually good that he's running, and I think it's good he's doing what he's doing, because... Even though he lies a lot, in some ways he's more honest than the other candidates or your typical candidate. He's outward with his bigotry, you know, with with sexism, with racism. And because of that, you know, he's not using coded language like many people have before. There's no dog whistle. Right. And because he's doing that, you can actually see now a lot of the country for what it is, you know, how much hatred and bigotry there is. And And I actually think that's... That's good that you're able to see, you know, there's no guessing anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there, there's a certain percentage of the country that is definitely, and it's spread throughout the country. It's not just in one area. It might be more in some areas than others, but it's real. Like for years, black people in this country would, and I know black comics, you know, for years would do jokes about hating the cops. And, and then they would do jokes about how white people not understanding that. Well, the past few years with the cell phone technology of being able to videotape uh, horrible things. People are like, 
wow, cops actually do bad things sometimes. Right. You know, and, and so now that there's video, people can actually see it when before it's just people talking about it. Nobody really believes it. Now you can see it. So with Trump now, you can actually see some of the ugliness and it's not guesswork. So, right. So, so I think that's good. You know, yeah, and it's, I'm it's, not saying that bad stuff is good, but the fact that you can see it is good. No, no, I hear you because there's there's been like a generational frustration of having politicians say things like the South will rise again, and you say, wait a minute, that's coded racism, and they yeah. say, what are you talking about? I just really like the South, yeah, and you're like, arg, I wish they would just yeah. be honest about yeah. what they're saying, or like when Sarah Palin says, we hockey moms got to yes. stick together. It's like, wait a second, you know, what's a hockey mom? Yeah, yeah, who are you talking to? Yeah. What's the code there? Exactly. And with Trump, on many occasions, he's done no code words. He's just None. said flat-out stuff, and, uh, and I don't agree with it at all. I think it's wrong, but I respect that, and I actually think it's, it's good because now people can actually see it. They don't have to guess it or ignore it. He couldn't even do the, the – it would have been gross, but at least moderately subtle if he'd just been like, as you can see, wink, wink, I have big hands. He couldn't stop yeah. it there. He'd just say, I have big hands, and I got other big stuff too. Like yeah. he can't not yeah. <laughs> just be no, explicit. It's, just, it's pretty amazing. It is stunning. I haven't heard a penis reference in a presidential well, I mean, debate since we're... Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. It was – Did they, Wait, did, did they actually – yeah, do one. Thou are hung like a thistle. No, I'm just kidding. That oh, okay. never happened. Yeah, I was gonna I was say kidding. I didn't think so. No. But but yeah, Rubio was the he started it with with the dick joke. He actually, yes. you know, he went from Mister Clean Cut, Mister <laughs> Mister Party Line guy, Man. and he's like, all right, I'm gonna do dick jokes on Donald Trump, and he, and I and be an insult comic. It's, it's pretty amazing. He yeah. like that express lane to the gutter. It didn't yeah, last. it's it's amazing. This is the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We're talking with stand-up comic Judah Friedlander, also the author of an amazing book of cartoons called If the Raindrops United. Let's hear a little bit from Judah's stand-up, followed up by some questions about Oscars so white and racism in Hollywood. Do you think the Oscars are racist? Yes. No. Yeah? No? It's all right. You think Hollywood's racist? Yeah. No? You don't think there's any racial issues with Hollywood at all? Really? <laughs> Let me talk to you for a second. <laughs> I think to move past and move forward, I mean, there's racist structures throughout the country. It's part of the country's history, and there's nothing wrong with acknowledging it. I think not acknowledging it is, is a big problem. I think Hollywood should start by acknowledging the racist past. Do you know what the first blockbuster ever was? It was 1915, Birth of a Nation, based on a book called The Klansman. And in the movie, the KKK are the good guys. Maybe Hollywood should start by talking about that a little bit. <laughs> and then they can progress and move forward, you know. But that's the other issue. Every person who owns the studios is a white guy. So even if they're not racist, they're more likely to greenlight a white guy movie. You know, and that shuts out a lot of other people. Uh, so, and then Hollywood sometimes will even make a white show even whiter. Do you remember the show Everybody Loves Raymond? Starred Ray Romano, Italian-American, dark brown hair. His wife on the show, Italian-American, dark brown hair. Their kids, all blonde. That's Hollywood taking a white show and making it even whiter. If they're doing that to a white show, imagine what they're doing to any other kind of shows. That's what Hollywood's about. It's about thin, blonde, and white. So how do we solve this problem? We invade Sweden. We invade Sweden. <laughs> the tallest, thinnest, blondest country in the world. And then racism is solved. Other countries would be like, why did you guys invade Sweden? We're like, because of the Oscars. 
That's the American way. When we have a problem, we invade the wrong country and everything is perfect. It's confusing for me as an outsider because you always hear about Hollywood as being this uh, bastion of liberalism and then you see nominations like this. How yeah. racist is Hollywood? There's definitely racism. And, you know, Hollywood has a, has a history, a, a very rich history of, of racism where you can see it in the films. Look at any uh, Cowboys and Indians films and, uh, you know, from the 40s, 50s and, and upwards, and you will see not only the Native Americans being the bad guys, but usually played by white people. Yeah. Uh, and even just recently uh, in the remake. Johnny Depp. Yeah, Johnny Depp played Tonto, Tonto. You know, white people are the most cast. I think black people are the second most cast. And then it's a, it's a huge drop-off. You know, and there's a big drop-off between white and black also. But black people are, as bad as it is, they're much better represented than Asians, Arabs, Latinos, Native Americans, you, you, know, sure. you know, much better represented. I remember on 30 Rock, this just, go, just goes to show you, they, um, they had a, on one episode, they had a character playing David, David Blaine was in the, in, in the scene. He was doing a scene with, with uh, Jenna Maroney. And I don't know if they couldn't get David Blaine or what, or we're just going to have someone play him. Now, David Blaine, I believe, is Jewish and Puerto Rican. And there's a lot of guys who look like David Blaine in New York, you know? So the guy they got to cast him, I believe his heritage was Indian. So he looks nothing like David Blaine. And we're doing the scene, and we're like, what? This, this isn't going to work <laughs> at all. My guess is that casting, they didn't know what to do. You know, it's like, how do you... Meanwhile, you can, just, you can just fucking go to the Bronx or Queens and you can find 300,000 guys who look like David Blaine. Yeah. You know, but, but they're not on the casting directors or agents' Rolodexes, you know? They're on their rosters. And even, you know, and some friends I know and, uh, you know, who are Asian, like, there are certain casting directors who just specialize in, like, Asian actors, you know? Right. So it's very regimented. There's so many people that just aren't allowed in and getting in is hard. I mean, it's hard for me to get in. You know, I didn't, I was doing stand up, you know, I think for 10 years or so before I ever got any kind of an agent, and they didn't even want to let me in. You know, Hollywood basically wants young, thin, pretty, blonde, preferably. And if you're not that, and the less that you are, it's going to be harder it is, no, no matter who you are. You is know? that one of the reasons you like stand up? Because it's more live by your wits. You're not depending on somebody stand-up else. Stand up has its problems too, but I, I would say. But you say can find general, a stage, you can find a mic, and you can general, just do it. It's more diverse and more democratic that way than Hollywood. You know, you can just get on stage, you know, and, uh, and apply your craft. It doesn't really matter yeah. who you are. And I think stand up in general. Uh, there's a little less classism involved, too. You know, you can be from any walk of life. Now, within the stand-up world, there are certainly cliques, you know, that cater towards certain groups. Yeah, you and know. people have written your about misogyny and yeah, stand-up. Of course, yeah. yeah. But, you know, your Brooklyn bar shows or, you know, your Silver Lake, uh, you know, hipster shows, I mean, those are basically white shows. Those are mm. basically, you know, left-leaning white well-educated shows there might be a sprinkling of of uh non-white people there but and and there's nothing wrong with that but you know but those are like different kinds of clicks is there a city that you get really psyched to go to if you're going to do stand-up well i i I like big cities i I like diverse audiences of so i mean i i like performing in new york the most i think i think the audiences are in general the most diverse uh 
you kind of get people like at the comedy cellar where I perform a lot. You literally get people from all over the world mm. of every age, every sexual persuasion, in every country. So uh, I like that. And then there's some other, you know, there are some bar shows that are great, you know, where they're free. So you get people that won't go to other comedy clubs because they're too expensive. You know, sometimes it's good to do shows, and I often do shows where you, you get no money, but uh, you're performing for a more diverse uh, economically group, and, and often that leads to a more diverse racially group. That's you awesome. know, You know, classism and racism, I, I think, are quite intertwined. But I think a lot of the racism in Hollywood is also them literally being completely unaware of it. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's deliberate where they're actively racist, and then sometimes they're, they're just so out of touch they don't know they're being racist. Mm. So... Did, did you watch the Oscars this year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do... I watched it. Yeah, yeah. Some of it. Yeah, I taped it and then watched it later. Yeah. And I, I guess, yeah, I wanted to ask. Some of it was good and some of it was disappointing. You know, yeah. the, the uh, when you're going straight on to Hollywood and confronting them with their racism. And, you know, it was done on that Oscar night. It was done basically just looking at it from the black person's perspective. And that's fine. But then later in the night when you do bigoted Asian jokes... Yeah. You, you know, it's just it's just sad. It's 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 angering and and it's sad. And then when you see the audience, I, I I'd have to watch it again. But I think the audience was laughing at it. You yeah, know? and you and know, it, where if it wasn't just, for Jeremy Lin speaking out about it, I would have missed that altogether. Yeah, I didn't watch and, it it. Was, and, and then there there were also nobody's talking about this, but there were also some lesbian jokes done. I think when the movie Carol, they made a joke where uh, you know he, he did some kind of a you know lesbian porn joke, and it's like it's just and and as a comic, those jokes. You know, because Sasha Baron Cohen did the the small dick Asian jokes. Rock did the Asians are good at math jokes, and even threw a Jewish joke in there too with that. And those jokes are they they're doubly disappointing for me. Those kinds of jokes. One on uh, just a human rights issue. Uh, you're, you're doing bigoted stuff, you know. And two, comedically for me, it's disappointing. Asians are good at math. That is such an old shitty joke. So comedically, it's disappointing. It's like if you're going to do a bigoted joke, at least write a new one and make it a good joke, you know, instead of doing a shitty, lazy, old joke. But, you know, more importantly, it's, it's a bigoted joke, you know. And then, and then Sasha Barrett Cohen does the, the small dick joke, which is another. I mean, Eddie, Eddie Murphy was doing that shit in the, the early 80s, and it was bigoted back then, you know. <laughs> so it's like, come on. And then you see the audience laugh at it. So it's like triply disappointing. It's like, one, you're laughing at that, which means you must think it's funny and and probably some truth to it, so it's just bigoted. And then if you're laughing at it, you actually think those jokes are quality, you know, just on a comedic level. You think that's quality, so it's just sad. We talked about Tina Fey earlier. Tina Fey had an interesting commentary on the Oscars. Where I don't oh, know if I don't you read know. it. What did she say? No. It was it was great because she she talked about like just what what a cesspool Hollywood was, and then in the context of being in that audience and all, the all white nominees and the just the cesspool phoniness of everything in the middle yeah. of it. People in speeches, she's just like one after the other. Like we have to save the environment, we have to do this, this. So it's like when when you cut everything that you just talked about yeah. with the preachiness as well, yeah. as if it's wisdom on the mount. Yeah, that, well, that, that goes, is its own kind of great. Right, and that goes to what I'm saying. While like a lot of bigotry is ingrained in people, and and they don't even know it. It's like how can you be like, all right, we're going to be pro diversity, all this stuff, and then you go laugh at Asian jokes like that. Mm-hmm. You know, how how do you do that? You know, how do you not like you know, groan or 
the self-awareness factor isn't very strong. Yeah, and I think, you know, but it, again, it exposes that there's just, you know, multiple levels of bigotry all over the place. And it's just, it's just sad. When you do something like march in a Black Lives Matter protest, yeah. um, you certainly, as I'm sure you're well aware, have a look yeah, how yeah. anonymous are you? And yeah, you know, it's like I, I don't. Is it a bit of a drag, or or does it maybe make people feel confident? Like, hey, yeah. that dude from Thirty Rocks on the march, and maybe they feel well, a little better. It's, or? it's interesting, you know. I I don't like getting recognized. You know, I like being anonymous. I like people watching. I like just doing my thing. But but yeah, you get recognized, and then sometimes if you try to dress down or dress different. Then sometimes people don't recognize you right away, but they just kind of stare at you like, hmm, looks familiar. And, and how do you dress and, uh, down? Yeah. yeah and, like just yeah. go naked? I know. <laughs> I need to like shave or something or put my hair up or something. But, uh, but dress anyways, down no, would be it's the like suit. I, yeah. If I, you know, when I go to those things, uh, if, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to lend my support. You know, I, I'd rather be there anonymously, but, if, you know, usually that doesn't happen. People recognize you from something. So that's fine. I'm happy to do it. And even like, uh, like when I started playing ping pong, getting back into playing ping pong and I play some competitively, I initially wanted to just escape from show business, get a mental break and get physical exercise. But then people started recognizing me and then I sort of started advocating for the sport, you know, and how much uh, physical exercise goes into ping pong? A lot. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's I'm sure that might surprise some people. Is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you, you, you'll, you'll be soaking wet with sweat after playing for an hour. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of the strokes are actually very similar to boxing, to punching. It's all a lot oh, really? of legs and hip, and yeah, you know. yeah. I have a couple friends. Uh, and how how a good are you? Of mine, well, friend, I'm for someone who plays tournaments, I'm average. For someone who, uh, if you do not play official tournaments, I should be able to easily beat you. Yeah, yeah. I consider myself to be a yeah. very very good bar level ping pong okay, player. Cool. Been playing my whole life. Cool. So you'd beat me like. Seven nothing skunk I, and it's done. Oh, you think? Nothing, but you know, eleven one skunk or would, yeah, could I get you at least a twenty one? It should think? be eleven zero to eleven five somewhere around there. Somewhere there. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I actually uh, train with. Uh, I take lessons from a girl who she, she's about twenty five now. She moved here when she was eighteen. She was a professional player in Beijing, and she moved here and she became a citizen last year and. Uh, and then last year, she actually won gold at the uh, Pan Am Games. So that means she was the best out of North and South America. Jesus. So uh, can, can yeah, you, so can you the, hang with her? Can you rally with her? If like if she played her yeah, hardest, yeah, she'll beat me anywhere eleven zero to eleven five, eleven six. But yeah, no, I can rally with her, and I and I win points off her sometimes. But but no, but she's she's a lot better than me. Okay, yeah. But um, but I see. Can, I'm not even I, talking I, smack. I I'm, I, I'm I'm good enough, had ideas of talking yeah, smack, but I'm, I'm not going to do enough, it. I'm good enough at ping pong where. I could play a ping pong player in a movie and make it look good. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah I can do that. But if, when it comes to the games, yeah, no. But anyway, so, but she's on the Olympic team. She's going to Rio. There she, was that she, one uh, pretty terrible ping pong movie. What was it called? Balls of Fury yeah, or something? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, bad. We, got, we got to remake that with you as the yeah, starring yeah. role well, or something. I, I kind of want to do a, like a ping pong documentary because there's a lot of uh, really? interesting things. The best ping pong players in this country, you know, they make their money by coaching people. And they usually charge, you know, like fifty to sixty dollars an hour. Wow! And so you're literally getting one of the best players in the country, and for fifty dollars an hour. Where do you play? That might sound. I usually play now. Well, I would play when I lived in Queens. I would play at different clubs. Queens has about three or four ping pong clubs. Three are Chinese owned. One's Korean owned. 
Uh, Brooklyn has a Russian-known ping pong Susan club. Sarandon has a ping pong then, club. Yeah, she does. And that's where I usually play now because that's I li- I'm living in Manhattan now, and so I'm closest to that. Uh, you ever yeah. see her there? Yeah, it's called there? Spin. Yeah, that's actually how I got to know Susan. I got to know what? Susan. <laughs> through, through ping pong? Through ping pong first, then acting, which is so weird. Dude. Yeah. I, I never would have thought that. Why you guys that. just get married already? Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. No, no. She's... I don't. We never went out, you know. But uh, <laughs> seems that like was rumors. That heaven. was rumors for a bit that we did go out. But she's great. She's she's awesome. And uh, yeah, so I actually take lessons from someone there uh, pretty often. Uh, yeah, her name's uh, Jennifer Wu. The Chinese name is Wu Yue. So uh, wow. Yeah, she'll be on the uh, playing for the U.S. Olympic team. And here's what? another little info: to make the U.S. Olympic ping pong team, you know, it's three men and three women. That's yep. it. But it's even harder than that. Uh, because North America is not a ping pong powerhouse, the Olympics only takes three men and three women from the U.S. and Canada combined. So once you make the U.S. Olympic ping pong team, you then have to go into a playoff with Canada. So if Canada, if all the women in Canada beat all the women in the U.S., Canada sends three women and the U.S. sends zero. And same with the men. So in the last Olympics... Uh, the U.S. women were very were good, and they sent three women. Canada sent zero, and on the men's side, the U.S. sent one, and Canada sent two. So to make to represent the U.S. in the Olympics, you have to be top three in the U.S. and Canada. Are you going to be in Rio? Are you going to check them I out? I might go. I might go. I'll certainly be watching online. I'm going to so. be there uh, yeah. for the first week of August. So if you're yeah. there, you got to let me yeah. know. Yeah, and then check another friend of mine, Tal Leibovitz, who's from Queens. He has a disability. He's on the uh, Paralympic team, and this will be his fifth Paralympics, and he's won gold before, so he'll be competing in that. I feel like I've really learned something here. Yeah, no, I know a lot about ping pong and soccer, the two sports I know stuff about. What's your favorite soccer club? I I used to, like, back in the mid-'90s, it was Manchester United, back when they had uh, Eric Cantona on the team, and even when they he's had... Uh, great Van... politics, too. He's yeah. a political guy. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. He's a serious political And Van Nisselrooy... Uh, I, I love them. Now I don't really. Hit, I don't. I just like good soccer. You know. I think Barcelona is probably playing the prettiest. Yeah, the best out there. You know. It's um, a Barca guy. You know. But I, it's not like I support them. But I. I love watching them play. Yeah. So the, what I'm working on now is a stand-up movie slash. It'll either be a feature-length stand-up performance film, you know, about 90 minutes, or it'll be a 60-minute. You know, I've been doing stand-up since 89, and I've never put out an album or a special, and for various reasons, some business-wise, some just... So it might be like a Comedy Central Some just mental problems, you know, (laughs) that have been blocking me. But then some were, you know, and I've had offers before, and I've I've turned them down because I didn't like the creativity blocks that they were putting up with censorship and the legality things I, I didn't like that they had. But now there's there's more freedom where you can, you know, there's so many areas where you can put things out now with the internet, uh, you know, with and, and and cable television. There's a wow. Lot. So so I'm just gonna make it myself, and then uh, so that's your next move. So the the yeah. book is if the raindrops united which is an amazing book. Uh, my family's loved it. It's like coffee table style. Everybody looks at it. And the next plan yeah. is doing a stand-up movie. Yeah, that's what I'm working on now. I'm going to try to Untitled that. at this point? And I think I'm going to call it America. It's one of my jokes or one of my lines in my act. Is, uh, America is the greatest country in the United States. Judah Friedlander, thanks so much for joining us on Edge of Sports. Thank man. you. Really it's appreciate great, it. man. I, it's uh, a lot of fun. I enjoy listening to this podcast. It's cool to be on it. Thank you. Yeah.
Thank you so much to Judah Friedlander. You can follow him on Twitter at Judah World Champ. Also, seriously, check out his book of cartoons, If the Raindrops United. Big hit over here in my house. Gotta see it to believe it. The dude's a talented guy. And we'll have a link to the book and to all of Judah's contact information in the description of this podcast. Now some choice words, and yes, that music you hear is Machito, one of the great artists to ever come out of Cuba in the 20th century. Very appropriate to talk about Cuba this week as President Obama makes his trip there to engage in some baseball diplomacy. And what I'm about to read is an audio exclusive for the Edge of Sports podcast. It will be published in the Progressive magazine next month. Now, when a lot of people think of the United States and Cuba, they think of 60 years of tension, mafia, intrigue, Cuban Missile Crisis, and the occasional exploding cigar. But there's another point of connection as well. You could say, arguably, with all due respect to Japan and the Dominican Republic, and Venezuela, and Puerto Rico, that the United States and Cuba are the two most baseball-mad nations on the face of the earth. Now, the United States has been isolated from the Cuban people for so long that our ignorance and unfamiliarity with the country's history runs particularly deep, and baseball is no exception. The Cuban baseball history is far more extensive and far more important than the exploits of Yasiel Puig and Eunice Cespedes and Jose Abreu and other Cuban Major League baseball players who defected in search of MLB glory. Cuba is the first country on earth to adopt the game of baseball following its codification in the United States. It's been written that the sport was sent there as part of an imperial cultural agenda by the United States, but that's actually not true. That's a false history. The actual truth is that Cuban students brought baseball to Cuba in 1864. They were exchange students in the United States, and they immediately started organizing games with visiting sailors from the United States. So before baseball was even fully professionalized in the United States, after the Civil War, they're playing baseball games in Cuba. It really is an amazing history. And it's impossible to actually even understand the history of Cuba's independence struggle without baseball, because Spain hated the fact that Cubans were adopting this game. Spain could not stand that Cuba was loving a sport that came from the New World, so Spain outlawed baseball and insisted instead that people get involved with bullfighting, the great sport of Spain, and so Cubans would play baseball in secret. It was actually a symbol of their independence, not their dependence on the United States, not a colonial relationship with the United States, but their independence from Spain. They loved baseball. It's also true that it's impossible to even understand baseball history in this country without understanding its relationship with Cuba. And I'm not only saying that because the first Latino player to ever play in the United States, Esteban Belan, was in fact from Cuba. And I'm not saying this because the Negro Leagues actually had two teams, the New York Cubans and the Cuban Stars, that were rooted in Cuba itself. 
So, hey, maybe an expansion team in the future, Major League Baseball, will actually be in Cuba. No, I'm actually saying that you can't separate U.S. baseball history from Cuban history because Cuba had the Winter Leagues in the first half of the 20th century where Major League players and Negro League players went to play together on the same fields. White and black players in the United States played together for the first time in Cuba. And that's why when President Obama made his trip to Cuba, he made a point to bring Jackie Robinson's widow and Jackie Robinson's daughter, Rachel Robinson and Sharon Robinson. It really is inextricable. And, you know, it's a shame that we don't remember this history. And it ended, of course, with the Cuban Revolution and the Cold War and the frayed relationships between the two countries. And it, it, But imagine instead, instead of decades of hostility, Baseball had been able to remain a bridge between the two countries, aided by a failed pitcher by the name of Fidel Castro and a Red Sox fanatic named John Kennedy. Instead, we had isolation, and for us in the United States, an inability to learn from the world of baseball. Now, to go to a game in Cuba is to see a level of excitement and flair that, honestly, the drudgerous major leagues could learn a great deal from. People like Goose Gossage could learn a lot from going down to Havana and seeing how the game can be played in a way that's actually exciting to young people instead of boring. Let me tell you something. Bryce Harper would be so much happier playing in Cuba than he is in Major League Baseball, which he's rightfully described as just a deadly old person's affair with none of the excitement that you see in sports like the NBA or international soccer. Now, I'm very excited about this new chapter in Cuban baseball history. And I'll tell you another reason why I'm excited beyond the fact that I love the way they play baseball in Cuba. I'm excited because the United States' relationship historically with the Caribbean when it comes to baseball has been incredibly exploitative. All you got to look at is the way in which the United States takes players from the Dominican Republic, signs them at age 15 for $2,000, and eventually throws 99% of them on the scrap heap. Cuba will not accept that kind of relationship for its players once the Major League Baseball pipeline opens up, and it's going to open up very, very soon between the two countries. I think you're going to see a relationship between the U.S. and Cuba that's much more like the relationship between the U.S. and Japan, where players in Cuba play there for a certain number of years, so their system is not, in effect, gutted by the opening up of relations. And then when U.S. teams, these billion-dollar enterprises, actually sign Cuban players, they have to write checks of 30 40 $50 million in compensation, which will then improve not only the Cuban economy, but the Cuban baseball infrastructure. It'll be a win-win. That's my hope. But I even have a bigger hope than that. And I could already see the emails coming in saying I'm being way too optimistic about this. But my hope is that when you have a more equitable relationship between the United States and Cuba, that will also apply pressure on Major League Baseball to have a more equitable relationship between them and the Dominican Republic as well. I really think that when Cuban players start playing freely without having to defect in Major League Baseball, we're going to see the development of baseball throughout the Caribbean that looks a great deal more like how Cuba and Japan develop baseball and much less like a sporting sweatshop. Hey, Maybe I'll be wrong, but at the very least, I think we can see a future where the relationship between the United States and the Caribbean, when it comes to baseball at least, is not one based upon a very unequal power relationship and rank exploitation. And you know what? We might have to have Cuba to thank for that when the dust is cleared.
The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Serena Williams. People have probably heard the story right now, but the CEO of the Indian Wells uh, tennis tournament, Raymond Moore, uh, resigned this week after he made comments where he said, and I quote, In my next life, I don't even know if he has this accent, but I'm going to do it in this accent. In my next life, when I come back, I want to be someone in the WTA. That's the Women's Tennis Association. Because they ride the coattails of the men. I do declare they don't make any decisions. And they are lucky. They are very, very lucky. If I was a lady player, I would go down every night on my knees and thank God that Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal were born because they have carried this sport. They really have. That's what he said. And that's why he's resigned. But I don't think he resigns if Serena Williams doesn't come back like Quicksilver Lightning and say, and I quote, Obviously, I don't think any woman should be down on their knees thanking anybody like that. I think Venus, myself, and a number of players... I could tell you every day how many people have said they don't watch tennis unless they're watching myself or my sister. I couldn't even bring up that number. Serena Williams is absolutely correct. And I'll tell you what's so amazing about this political moment that we're in right now is that I think we would have been more surprised if Serena Williams had said nothing than the fact that she said something. And it's worth recognizing not only how important her voice was to getting this Moore fellow off of the tennis circuit where he does not belong, But I also think that it shows us that we're really in a different period where it comes to that intersection between sports and politics. I mean, there was a time where we would have been shocked if Michael Jordan had said anything about politics. Now we're at a point where we'd be shocked if Serena Williams had said nothing. And you know what? She said something, and it mattered. Thank you, Serena Williams. And thank you for listening to the Edge of Sports podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can always send us emails at edgeofsports at slate.com. Believe me, I read every one. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Last week, we had a tremendous conversation with Dr. Harry Edwards, so be sure to go back and hear that show if you missed it. Obviously, as long as March Madness goes on, Dr. Harry Edwards and that interview will always be a very important historical document. People should listen to that and re-listen to that. And special thanks to Judah Friedlander for making the time to sit with us in the back of a Montgomery County Public Library for a couple hours just to talk smack. Really do appreciate that, my man. And you know what? I'm taking you up on that ping pong challenge. You don't want to play me, Judah. I like you. You're a good dude. But when I play ping pong, I play for keeps, baby. And one last time, big shout out to the public libraries of Montgomery County. Where would we be without you? Edge of Sports is produced by the great Dan Bloom for the Panoply Network. Our intern is Dustin Foote. We are out of here. Peace. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, what role will Donald Trump play in your campaign? Well, I think we should build a wall around Donald Trump. Put mirrors on the inside. That way he's happy. And I think when Mexico hears about this, they'll be like, you know what? We'd like to pay for this. We, uh, we think this is a solid investment.